Okay, tonight we're going to talk on something that's kind of a collective cross lines thought. Like maybe everybody gets on the phone and calls you and tells you this is what you're teaching on today. And so anyway, there was a lot of input into it today. But anyway, we're going to tackle a subject that is kind of going in a different direction than we've gone before. But we've talked about that the kingdom or the kingdom of heaven, it feels like backwards, upside down, completely opposite than anything else in our life. Have you ever felt like going God's way, you're going the opposite way? Like you're going a different direction? The kingdom goes backwards. It flows backwards against the world. Like the world's going this way and you're going upstream to go to the kingdom. Or it goes backwards against your thinking. Or it goes backwards against your flesh. Flesh. It goes backwards against your flesh. Or it's like what we talked about. You come on in to the Lord and you find out that every thought and every feeling that you have doesn't line up with God's word. And you're starting all over trying to get your mind renewed to the word of God. You have to start getting into the word because you're just shocked. You're like, you've got to be kidding. Every thought I have, every feeling I have goes contrary to what God's word says. Like I've been trained wrong. Like who raised me? Like how, how, how did this happen to me? But also backwards, strangely enough, it goes backwards to most theologians or most doctrine and most advice you get. It's like the kingdom flows a different direction than what most people say. And it for sure goes backwards against the spirit of this age. But alas, we've spoke on that before. So that's not what we're talking on. We're going to talk about going forward. We're going to talk about going the other direction. We're going to turn and teach it in a different direction. And it's you going forward towards the kingdom. We've talked so much about it going backwards. I'm ready to see what scripture supports going forward. Now, it might be that you might have to walk in a little water to get here. So let's see where we go. Let's look at the forward motion of going with the kingdom of God. You know, we were talking Sunday about this is not a thinking scripture. This is not a thinking religion. This is a believing and it's not only just a believing, it's a speaking. It's a saying. And it's not only just saying, but it's also acting. So many people will stop along the way. Like they'll only go forward so much. I'm gonna change my thinking. And I'm so proud of myself. I think so differently than everyone else. I just, I'm really proud of the cross lines thought we have. I just think differently. Or you think, wow, I just love the way that my mind loves truth. Like, it's nice to think differently. But then you realize that it's more than thinking, it's believing. And then you get in trouble for believing and not speaking. I'm going to just think my prayers to God. I'm going to just think what I should say to someone. I'm going to just think what I should do. But then, past believing is, past believing is saying, and past saying is acting, doing. And it says, don't be hearers only, because you're going to deceive yourself if you're only into hearing. So, I'm going to take you into a place that to me, if it doesn't blow your mind, you're not listening to the scriptures and what they're saying. Like, it's going to go to a place that you've never gone before 
with scripture if you really consider what the word's saying to you. So I've put some of these little things into Bible studies before, but I don't think we've ever treated them as a whole. I'm going to tell you, first of all, God is making you some offers. And I'll show you those places in scriptures where he's making you offers. So you can read it in context. You can see, you know, what the scriptures are around it. But I don't know if you've ever seen yourself in a position to think that God's really offering you something. My concern is not God offering you something, but it's how you're going to react to it. Now, you may act like a crawdad. And you may back out of all that God offers you. You may just, for some reason or the other, find a reason that you're going to back out. And uh, there's a few scriptures even in the Bible that tell you, test the Lord. You know, there's that famous one, test me now in this and see that I'm not found true. Boy, that's holy ground. I mean, that makes you a little nervous thinking the Lord's saying, test me in this. You know, Malachi is famous for the tithing verse that says, Test me and see that I won't open the windows of heaven and pour you a blessing you can't contain. You know, the Lord sometimes calls you into dialogue with him, to conversation, to see if he's really worth putting your trust in him. So, again, I'm going to tell you, he's making you an offer. And I'm going to see which stance you're going to take. So the first one is a verse that I don't know if you've ever looked at it. So I want you to make sure you write it down or get the verses from me. I can give them to you later. I can send you the notes. But it's in Isaiah chapter 7. And it's so unusual because it goes contrary to everything that you think. You know, Jesus got on to the Jews a lot of times because they always wanted a sign. But he got angry with them because he would give them a sign and they still wouldn't believe. This is totally different. This is an offer that he makes this guy. And I want you to realize how this guy gives him a very religious answer to it. Look what he does with this offer. It's an unusual set of two people meeting here. It's Isaiah and Ahaz meeting together. So the prophet Isaiah and the king Ahaz. He was very young at this point. He also was very afraid. He was being attacked. He gets a word from the Lord. And in verses 4 through 9, God starts telling him some things, and he tells him, take care of yourself and remain calm. Do not fear for yourself. Do not let your heart despair. And he says, these are just two smoking stubs, burning sticks. Don't worry about them. And this king was deathly afraid of them. I mean, this would be like uh, Iran and North Korea are bombing you. And the Lord speaks to this new king, and he gives him some news. You know, it's odd to think that God can speak to us and we stumble at good news. But then at the point that he gives him good news, then God ups the ante. And he does something so remarkable here. Watch this inner, inner uh, dialogue. Watch this connection now, not just between Isaiah and Ahaz, but watch this interaction between God and Ahaz. Watch this interconnection, not just between, let me say it the opposite way, Ahaz and Isaiah, but watch this connection between Ahab and God. Because sometimes you make God angry. And a lot we're going to deal with is frustration. Did you know that God gets frustrated at us? 
I was shocked how much I saw it in Scripture. But you've got to understand what he's frustrated at. Because we do it backwards. Remember, I told you theology. We act like he's frustrated at us for this, but we're actually not doing what Scripture's saying. He's frustrated with us for this. I want to show you this frustration here. He tells me, Isaiah says to Ahaz, ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord. Now, he doesn't just tell him, ask a sign. He tells him what kind of sign he wants him to ask for. He says, ask for yourself a sign from the Lord your God and make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Request something, a sign from, let's say, Yahweh is the Hebrew word here, your God, deep within the underworld, to the gates of hell, to the underbelly, or make it as high as the heavens. Wow, that's the ramification. That's the boundaries that God puts on this sign. He's just saying, ask anything that's impossible, incredible. Can you imagine this offer? I don't think we ever take time to study it. And I think it's because our flesh keeps on doing it the same way every time. But this is the context of a verse that we pull out a lot. But we don't read what actually is taking place here. So this is one of those offers in the Bible that says, ask anything. I mean, I can't see much that he left out here. He said, make it like to the depths of hell or to heaven itself. Make an offer. Those are unusual words for a prophet to say God's telling you. You know, you know it wasn't Ahaz's good heart or righteousness, but it was God's goodness here offering him this kind of a supernatural invitation. He's asking him into the supernatural. So God invites you into the supernatural. You can't work with God if you don't get into the supernatural. I know it scares you. It should. But it's where God lives. It's his realm. It's where God thinks. It's where it says his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our... Can you wreck yourself? Can you get off? Can you get to sleep? Of course you can. That's what makes it fun. That's called risk. <laughs> That's called what you're up against in these days that we're living in. But I don't want you to do what Ahaz did. Watch what happens next. So he tells him, this is an invitation into the supernatural. The supernatural that has no ceilings on it, nor seemingly any floors to it, no limits. God was challenging Ahaz to name the impossible. And he's telling him he would do it. You know, he's throwing the impossible around. And before we think, wow, this stands alone. I've never seen anything like it. I can remember a few scriptures that Jesus does this with with the impossible. Have you ever thought in the realms of the impossible with the Lord? Is your faith to the possible? Is there anything about your life where you're walking in a realm that's impossible? If you're not, you're not walking with God. Because God is in the realm of the impossible. If everything in your life is just natural, you're just doing what any human could do. And so you see this of God moving Ahaz into the impossible realm. Like he's telling him, yes, in the natural, these guys are going to attack you and they could destroy you. 
But he's telling him, I can give you a son. You know, it kind of reminds me of that game where you throw it around like a hot potato. I want you to watch this offer be thrown around. It's the challenge of naming the impossible. What's impossible in your life? What does God want out of you? What is he offering you in return? So what's odd about this, this puts Isaiah now into the status of a wonder worker. He's now becoming a miraculous prophet. You know, we think of Elijah that way, Elisha, some of the other ones. But now Isaiah is putting this on the table. And it's a tall order that he had said. You know, it's odd what Ahaz does with this. He was given the chance to ask for a son, and Ahaz is too haughty to get into the realm of the impossible. Oh, you don't think about it, but it's haughtiness that causes you to turn your nose up at something God's offering. I know you hear this taught so many other different ways, but I don't want us to shy away from some scriptures that give us a way that pride can be in your life on the other end. Oh yeah, you can be prideful arrogantly. Everybody thinks about those. But this is an insecurity pride. And insecurity stinks to high heaven just as much as pride. It'd be an arrogant. And you see Ahaz do this, but you know sometimes with insecurity, it's a false humility. It's a fake. It's a fake spiritual. It's an act. You gotta cleanse your heart out of anything that's not genuine with the Lord. Ahaz says something that you would think would be considered scripture here of, well, that's a right answer. He says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to a test. Wow, that sounds scriptural. I mean, you could think of some scriptures to, to go along with this. So he's been told by a prophet, ask for a sign, and he says, I will not ask. And if that had been the right answer, then Isaiah would have said, that's the right answer. You did very good. You passed the test. But instead, I want you to watch the emotion of the prophet. We see hypocrisy. And the one thing I see in Scripture that gets us in more trouble, it talks about there are people that are unbelieving that go to hell. But when it talks about hypocrites, it says they're cut into pieces and placed in outer darkness. It seems like hypocrisy is just the absolute thing that God detests. And the thing we have to look at our heart is for hypocrisy. And hypocrites are the most religious people on earth. You know, Martin Luther said, Ahaz simulates a holy attitude, which says that he does not wish to request a son because he fears God. You know, he didn't want to do anything because he's so devout with God. Hypocrites have this pseudo-spiritual answer. And they have this tone to them, and it's part of the pride and the arrogance. And he says, I will not put God to a test. That sounds like the right answer. Because we only deal with that side of pride, but we don't deal with this side of pride. We don't deal with what keeps us from being childlike. We don't deal from what gives us the right heart and the right approach to God with faith. You know, the danger is that you're too spiritual in your life to ask. 
It's a danger. If you're not asking from God, you're entering into that realm of self-smugness. They lack courage. They lack courage when a risk is involved, when you're scared. Am I scared when God puts me to the test? Yes. Does it take courage? Yes. Why does it say enter his throne room with boldness <laughs> to obtain grace and mercy in the time of need? It takes courage not to be a worm when the Lord has redeemed you, when he strengthens you. So Isaiah speaks back to him, and these are his words. And you see how Isaiah takes this. He says, hear now, you house of David. I mean, is that not calling on his heritage? Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Why shall you try the patience of my God also? Woo. Let me give it to you in another translation. Is it too little for you to weary men that you should weary my God also? You weary me. Is it too little for you to weary human beings that you also have to weary my God? It's quite a statement in ministry. And some people, they test the resolve of man and God. And Ahaz only said one sentence. He only proclaimed one thing. I'll not test God. He didn't, he didn't just keep hardening his heart and saying no. He just said it once. And Isaiah hits him and says, you are wearing us out. Like, how dare, there, there's no free pass for him being young here. You may say, well, I'm young, I didn't know. I'm gonna say this was spoken to a young king. How dare you wear out God? The way you can wear out God is not asking. Have you ever done this when you wear God out? Have you ever felt God's patience being stretched? I mean. We always think of it on the negative side, and I'm not saying there's not those sermons and there's not those convictions, but you can wear God out on this side as well. As Steph would say, you're failing on the high side. You're failing in an area where what God does to your life is he does make you different than everyone else because he lives in you. So it sounds so religious, it's so spiritual. Our hypocrisy is the most religious side to us. And there's frustration. And through scripture, I'm gonna show you a lot of verses of frustration for a little bit, but they're not what you would think. And in this context, it says the famous words, all right, I'll give you a sign, even though you didn't ask. This shall be your sign. A child shall be born unto you of a virgin. Merry Christmas. <laughs> We've heard this statement so many times, but we never knew it was the frustration of God to say, you want to know that I'm there? I'll do something you've never thought of. I'll let a lady who's never known a man have a baby. He picked him a son, all right. <laughs> And besides that, it's not just a baby, it's his baby. It was this context of man wearying God by not asking enough that the Messiah came, was promised. 
Maybe Ahaz knew. It's time to scoot over, O house of David. You're not living up to the expectations. You're not living up to your heritage. You don't ask for a sign, God will come up with one. And there we have it. Matthew recorded it. Why does no one ever give this for the Christmas story? It's powerful. For it gets you into the realm of the impossible by invitation. You know, we'll take it from man. You know, you'll take it from your girlfriend or your boyfriend. But God himself is offering this kind of uh, offer to you, this kind of invitation. All right, so the first way that you can offend the grace of God is refusing his offers. And not that he spelled out what his offer was. He was letting you come up with it. So in some ways, my life has to have enough pull on it to do God's will that I need to be asking a lot of God because I've got to have his presence on me and his power to be able to do what I'm called to do. But if you do nothing with that, and you, and you, you offend God himself and his grace if you don't take it to that level. The next thing is, are you living your life? The first one is saying no to God. The second one is you're just giving God just enough. Just enough. Barely getting by. Just doing what you're told. Again, you're going to feel God's emotions. It's so unique to think that the Spirit of God has emotions. I would prefer them to be me giving him pleasure. But this is the same thing in 2 Kings 13. It's the same type of story that the prophet goes to the king and he tells him, you know, shoot the arrow. And he tells him where to shoot it, how to shoot it, all the different descriptions of how to shoot it. But in verse 18, it leaves the area of someone telling you exactly what to do. And you enter into the uncharted area of doing what you're not being totally instructed how to do. I don't know if that made sense to you, but it scared me when I thought about it. In my life, I like going down that path where I have mentors, where I have someone to see, where the scripture spells it out. This is moving you into an area of what you bring to the table with the Lord. How you have a uniqueness where you and God have something that's very different. The guy passed the test in being like everyone else. Like, I'm talking about the, the good, obedient kings. He passed the test with that. He did exactly what the prophet said on the first go-around. But it's the second go-around that makes you unique, that gives you distinction, and is high risk. It's when God doesn't spell it out for you. It's when God doesn't tell you exactly how you're supposed to do it. And you want to call and ask 20 questions. Lord, God, help. I need advice. And so the man of God here, the guy is, um, he's taken the first step and he's done well. So I think he just expects he's going to do well the second time. So he tells him, I want you to take the arrows. They're in your quiver. And I want you to hit the ground. He doesn't give him any more instructions than that. That's it. And the guy takes him out and he, he gives what's necessary. He gives three good whacks with the arrows against the ground. And a lot of us in Christianity are given three good whacks. 
You know, you kind of wonder about what about the people that don't give any wax that God's asking for? They don't do anything that God's asking. But watch what happens here. And the man of God was furious with him. And he said, you should have smitten it double what you did it, five or six times. If you had done that, then Syria, you would have been able to strike Syria and consume it. Now, you're only going to be able to have three successful battles. You know, I look at this one, and again, you can fail on the high side. That God can be asking of you, and you can give God just exactly what he asked for. But you fail in the area of what he doesn't ask for. Where it's yours to give to God as a gift, that you're creative. Like, God, what can I do for you? Like, I told the Lord when I was young, maybe this sounds presumptuous, and maybe it is, but I was real young when I said it. I said, would you let me do something for you that no one else has ever done for you? I don't know what it is. Would you help me find it and help me do it? I started asking into the impossible. Are you just barely trying to keep up with what God wants, expects, request, doing what you're told, barely getting by. You're frustrating the almighty God who lives in the realm of the impossible. He wants some fire out of you, some persistence. So comes to the next fellow. This is the risky one. And this makes no sense. If this story had not gone like this, if this story had gone differently than this, I wouldn't be saying this tonight. And you know this story quite well. It's Matthew 14, 22 through 23. And all the disciples are in the boat. They see Jesus walking on the sea. My dad always said when Jesus walked on the sea, it was one of the frivolous miracles he did. Like it wasn't healing anybody or feeding anybody. It was just kind of frivolous. He walks on the sea. I personally think he couldn't get in quiet time for his prayer time, so he had to go where people weren't. Or he would never have any rest. But, you know, you can, you can just let yourself imagine but he's walking on the sea at night, and the disciples have such discernment that they're terrified, and they discern, this is a ghost. And they're screaming, it's a ghost, and they cry out in fear. And Jesus immediately spoke to them and said, take courage, take courage, it's just me, it's, it's I, it's I. Do not be afraid. Now, who would give Peter this idea? Peter, in verse 28, says, Lord, now there's a test to this. I don't know if you've seen that Peter was testing Jesus. He said, if it's you. Now you've identified it as you. Maybe the ghost is just talking. Maybe the ghost is just saying this is Jesus. But now Peter's fixing to walk outside of the boat, for whatever that looks like, based on what a ghost is saying to him, if it's not Jesus. So there's a risk to this in more ways than one, you know. Uh, he could have looked for a pebble on the bottom of the boat, dropped it over and see if it sunk. But no, not Peter. Why take time to do that? He just jumps out of the boat. That's what he plans to do. So he tests the Lord and he says, If it's you, Lord, command me to come to you on the water. Like, I'm not satisfied in you coming to me. I'm only going to be satisfied if you command me to come to you. Now, honestly, this is hilarious. Well, it's good because it worked out well. But you know what I would have thought? If this theology had gone this way, if Jesus would have said, how dare you not believe me? How blasphemous you are. How could you even imagine walking on water? Like, are you trying to show off? Oh, yeah, you're Peter. I know you are showing off. 
Like, how could you do something this arrogant? Like, this is heresy. Do you think you're God? I mean, all these things that you would think religiously that Jesus would have said to him. What purpose does it show, Peter? You trying to make yourself not be as humble as the rest of them? I mean, Jesus could have said a thousand things to him here. A thousand things. And rightly so. If he had, I'd be saying what he said. I don't know until you ask. I mean, Peter had a bold statement. Command me to come if it's you. I mean, you would think he'd be shot down for trying to copy God's son. I mean, what are you trying to be? Jesus? This is the one word in scripture that changed all of theology for me. One word. Jesus said, come. You know, I don't think the Lord is threatened by our ridiculous faith ideas. Whether it's pulling a roof off, trying to get a friend down to get healed, or whether it's jumping out of a boat. But I'm not going to leave it at this because... Believe me, Jesus isn't through with it. He's going to get really frustrated. And Peter got out of the boat. He walked towards Jesus. I mean, I'd be counting the steps, seeing the wind. He began frightening. He began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him. And you would think that Jesus would say, Peter, I just want to encourage you. Look at all these other people. They didn't do it. <laughs> you know, I just want to give you some encouragement. Just keep on trying. I mean, that's the religious answer. I'm going to just encourage you. At least you tried. Oh, not Jesus. Not the sweet Jesus we know. Jesus looks at him, and he says, You of little faith. Little. Walking on water is little. I went to Israel. I tried this first on Lake Brownwood, and I upped the game to the Sea of Galilee. There's nothing special about it. You put your feet on the water, and you go down. You have a little more hope at the Dead Sea because there's salt, and you can kind of float. But this is the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus calls it little faith. Little. What would he say about your life? What's he calling what you're trying out with him? Are you giving him your best religious answers? Are you going to give God all these religious answers till the day you meet judgment and find out it was as simple as believing him? Your Bible doesn't read the other way. And when we preach this, we make it spiritual. We spiritualize them. We take the miracles and make them spiritual. And we're missing the point that this is a God who takes risk. He took a risk in making you to begin with. Now take a risk to joining him on the water. We're not going to get this job done unless we do it the way he did it. So, you know Jesus here, you man of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus' frustration was not with him for trying it. He didn't say, see, that teaches you for trying it. He didn't tell him, see, you should have never got out of the boat. If I hadn't been here, you'd drown. Jesus, and having spent much time with the Jews and loved them, with the Israeli, he gets on to him for not being completely successful. <laughs> and he tells him, look, if you're going to do it, walk on the water. Keep your eyes on me. Don't be looking at the winds and the waves. Little faith. It makes you wonder. I wonder uh, what he would have said to those that were sitting in the boat. This is called the Ford Walk on Water. And it's for the brave. 
Don't let someone tame your Bible down. Don't make someone make it where it's soft and easy. Your Bible's not tame. It's for the wild at heart. It's for the crazy, the radical. He doesn't mean for you to be comfortable. I get uncomfortable myself speaking of it. <laughs> Let me show you something. I didn't know it till I started counting them today. But the Lord is signing you blank checks. That just kind of makes your stomach turn into a knot uh, anyway. Do you know what a blank check is? It's called a lot of trust. Your child is to a certain age when you hand the child a signed check and say, take it. But the thing that I'm going to ask you about these verses as you write them down is not do you know these verses, but what are you going to do with them in your lifetime? Because I think the trouble we're going to get into is that God gave you blank checks and you're going to hand those checks back to him unused. And you're going to tell the Lord, I kept them really in good condition. Look, they're mint condition. Look, I, I kept these promises just perfect. It doesn't even look like I ever marked them in my Bible. Look, God, they're in real good shape. I never quoted them out my mouth. It's called religion. And he's offering you blank checks. I mean, this makes me nervous reading them. I, I can't imagine me handing my college students this. And God knows all of our faults. He knows all of our weaknesses, lack of judgment, and character deficiencies. He knows all of that stuff about us, but he still tells you. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who's in heaven. I've seen two or three of you agree on something I don't like at all. <laughs> he doesn't couch that. He didn't put a lot of things around it. Of course, we're going to you know, make us say it's the will of God and... That goes without saying. I'm not saying that it's not the will of God. Of course it's the will of God. Of course he's meaning what his will is. But what he's saying is his will is in the realm of the impossible. It's in the realm of the not so practical. It's in the realm of the, the not so natural. It's the supernatural. And that's what makes people give glory to God. It's when they see something on your life they can't explain any other way that you live a supernatural life with the Lord. Look at this. Let me read that clearly. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who's in heaven. So Jesus makes the promise that his dad will keep the blank check, pay out the promise. He's telling you that. If you think this blows your mind and thinks I must be crazy for saying this to you, you're right. These promises are beyond your understanding. Who would make such a deal? And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Mark 11, 22. First one was Matthew 18, 19, if I didn't give it. Mark 11, 22. Well, here's another one. Therefore I tell you, whatever you shall ask in prayer, believe that you've already received it, and then it'll be yours. Mark 11, 24. Why doesn't Jesus just give you 100,000 things to say, these are exemptions, don't do those? Does he have trust for you, more trust for you than you have for yourself? Whatever you ask in my name, this I'll do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 14, 13. Do you see where I'm moving here? He's telling you how he gets glory is for you to ask in his name, and he do it. 
That's what gives God glory. That's called a testimony. That's called a praise report. That's called you knowing God did something. I acknowledge God in my life. I couldn't have done that for myself, and no person could have given me that. That was God. Here's another one. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. Well, that's kind of crazy when you think of all the promises and his word abiding in you. There's a lot in this book. I mean, like I said, Ahaz wasn't your perfect picture of a man following God. John 15, 7. This one, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he should give to you. This is talking about you bearing good fruit in life. John 15, 16. Here's another one. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy shall tank over, that your joy shall be full. Can you believe he said that? John 16, 23 and 24. What are we going to do with the ask anything verses? Because you're going to have to answer to God what you did with this. I've shown you in scripture how he feels when you tell him, I'm not going to test you. I'm not going to take a risk. I'm going to sit in the boat. I'm going to only do what I'm told. You know, that's what got the guy with the talents in so much trouble. This. He was given talents, and he was scared to invest them. He was scared to do anything with the talents because he said, I was afraid I might do something wrong. And I knew you to be a hard God, that you reap where you don't sow. And like, see, God's into those realms. And Jesus says, you understand it with money. Like, you know, why do we put our money in the bank? Well, it used to, so you got a little bit of an interest rate on it. <laughs> And he says, but I gave you these talents to invest in order to make more. You're supposed to be doing something with the faith that God has given you. He does not want your faith all wrapped up in a cloth and handed right back to him the same way it was when he gave it to you. You're supposed to invest in the kingdom. You're supposed to take risk. It doesn't count until it makes your stomach do flip-flops asking yourself, do I do this? Yeah, I think of nights before I took a mission team. One night my dad told me, you're about to put $42,000 of mission money into a man's account that you don't know to buy you tickets? How about if this website's fake? And I told you the story. They goes, we can't even fight this out. It's it's some you know it's somewhere else in the United States. And I said, well, it's not exactly in the United States. It's in Canada. <laughs> it's international. And they goes, either tonight a hero is born or a zero. He said, how well did you hear the Lord? Well, I led this guy to the Lord. How sure do you think the salvation took? It's forty-two thousand dollars. You're going to be uh, doing a lot of work this summer to pay everybody back. I told Dad, 
Well, I've only found fifth gear. I can't find reverse. I've got to crank it up. We leave in a week and I haven't bought tickets and they're going up. So you know what I did because of what he told me? I bought the guy that I was sending the money to an airline ticket also. I decided if he's a thief, I'm taking him with me. <laughs> it's crazy, y'all. God doesn't want you being so serious. You know, youth would pay more attention to the Bible if we had a little more fun with it. God wants you to take risk. You know, when you fall in love, you take risk. It's a risk. C.S. Lewis says, if you don't want to take risk with love, he said, put your love in a tomb and let it die because it'll get cold and dark and never produce. That's what your life will look like if you don't live it. And he'll say, let the dead bury the dead because you're not living. You have to take risk. I'm encouraging you to take risk. You know, Jesus got the frustrated because what's funny is the very people that got mad about it were the very people not doing it you'll figure out that your biggest uh, critics are the ones who aren't doing anything I'd never read this sentence right here I guess I'd read it and skipped over it would be a better way to say it but in the story when the, the guys couldn't cast out the demons they had tried and they'd failed but I never saw that in verse 14, that when they came to the other disciples, you know, Jesus and the three disciples came down the Mount of Transfiguration, and they came to the other disciples, there was a large crowd around them. I never noticed this. And the Pharisees and the teachers were attacking them <laughs> and arguing with them. I'd never seen that part. So they had failed at casting out demons, and you think about the religious guys had these disciples cornered. And you can just imagine what their words were saying, how they were hammering them. You can be sure they were taking a harsh verbal beating. <laughs> Your critics want you to fail. That's why you're scared to take risks with God. And so as a result, Jesus' disciples were already ashamed of themselves because they couldn't heal this child or deliver this child. And this would be very embarrassing, and it would reflect badly on them. And they're thinking, and it looks bad on Jesus. So um, I, I don't want you to forget anything, though, because here we are in Mark. But if you look back in your Bibles to Mark 6, 13, these very same disciples had been sent out by Jesus and had been casting out demons already. So it wasn't that they hadn't already been doing this. Now they were failing. So what's happening to their faith when they're uh, facing their critics? So they run up against a case they can't cast out. So guess what? People who don't do it will pass judgment on people who try and fail. So verse 15, all the people are watching this argument. But in 15 it says, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran and left the debate and ran to Jesus. You know why? Because they thought, he's going to go over and tell them who's right and wrong. I mean, the people were all excited about this. They were relieved that someone was there to settle the fight. So Jesus asked, what were you arguing with them about? So Jesus asked the question, and I wish someone else had answered and said, oh, this is what they were saying. But a man answered, 
And he just got right to the point. He said, I brought my son to him and they couldn't do anything, they failed. So he just, he puts the point up. That's what we're arguing about. I have a son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. When it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and he becomes stiff as a board. Yeah, this one didn't look good. <laughs> this isn't praying for a cold. This boy was trapped in his own body. I asked your disciples to drive that spirit out, but they couldn't do it. So what does Jesus say? 19. Boy, these are his words. Wow. You unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? How long shall I stay with you? He snaps. Bring the boy to me. You know, you think about we were the ones, the unbelieving ones. He simply wanted more out of us. We were the ones that caused his temper to flare. You have to realize when you do nothing and you just pass commentary on scripture, but you never try this, you must go to a foreign land and try this. I remember the first time I was in the Philippines. They brought us a man that had stabbed his mother to death. They had him bound up. You know, I love primitive people. They tie him and nobody sues them. They had a rope around everything on that guy. And they told me, your whole team has tried to cast it out of him. He didn't look good. He looked just like this. And they said, um, so we brought him to you. I don't know why they chose me. This was pre-Malou. So I told him to take the ropes off. So I prayed for him, just like my dad had taught me to do. And I laid my hands on him, and I commanded that unclean spirit to come out of the guy. He looked crazy. I put hands and I watched that guy with his crazy, insane eyes. There's nothing like insane people. You know when I tell you they're insane. And miracle of all miracles, I think I was as surprised as everyone else. But when I was through, they didn't put the ropes back on the guy. The guy had peace all over him. <laughs> As the first time I had ever done that with someone like that. And I'm inviting you to try it because it either works or it doesn't. <laughs> this isn't something that you see in the sweet by and by. It's, that's why I can understand these disciples. They're like, oh. But you see Jesus' anger because he wants more out of us, not less. You know your roommate's possessed. I'm just joking. All right. It's your brother. <laughs> okay, verse 21. Jesus asked the boy's father. He gets a little case history here. How long has he been like this? All of his life. You hear the parental agony. This is the bad part. It's like it's suicidal. It's like something in this kid's trying to kill him. It has often thrown him in the fire or the water. It tries to kill him. And then the father says something that he kind of crossed a line with it. But he said, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. That didn't go, that didn't work well. And Jesus says, if you can, you know, Jesus is not going to let this man stay in his self-pity. Like, if you can, people, the scholars go backwards and forth on this one. They don't know if Jesus was saying, if you can, as if Jesus, or if he's saying to his disciple, if you can, like, he's put it back on mankind. Like, are you just going to keep this up where I have to be here? Because he's asked that. But the question is, somebody's got to do it. And that's what he says next. Everything is possible for him who believes. 
And the guy realized, wow, that's a high statement. It's what we're crying out tonight. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. <laughs> because right now, what you feel in your heart is unbelief. It's that I believe and I don't believe. It's mixed help. So you see, somehow Jesus and the Father and the Son were right there together. And when Jesus saw a crowd was running to the scene, he didn't take any more time with the guy. He told him, this is the impossible realm. It's just knowing who your God is that he wants people set free. And he rebuked the impure spirit. He said, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Oh, he gave him a little bit of blanket protection there. And the spirit shrieked, and it convulsed him violently. And it came out. And the boy looked like a corpse. And everybody goes, he's dead. That's a deliverance gone bad. The first one couldn't, couldn't cast him out. <laughs> they failed, but Jesus, whoops, he did something. The whole thing left him, even the boy's life. <laughs> So Jesus reached down, took him by the hand, and he lifted him to his feet. And the boy stood up. You know, whenever the disciples are separated from Jesus, they get in trouble, and they experience a crisis. And he's trying to prepare them for the day when he's not going to be there in the flesh. And you must secede. So, so the Father has mentioned the disciples' failure but you notice that in stark contrast, we see Jesus express frustration over something different, of their lack of faith, because he calls them, these are terrible words, you faithless and perverse generation. How much longer shall I put up with you? How much longer must I be with you? Like this lack of faith, that's what he calls the fact that they couldn't cast it out. Quickly then, Jesus rebukes the demon and instantly heals the child. The disciples do not, however, remain silently scolded. They go and they try to figure out what they had done wrong on their own. Now, what I want you to notice in Mark 9, 14 through 29, which we just read, and Matthew 17, 14 through 20, in these two passages of the same event, we find two of the most quoted phrases and promises Jesus has ever said. But too many times we share these phrases out of context. It's telling us by these phrases to go further and don't back down. He is not shaming us for working a miracle, but for not working one, for failing. And he gives us two phrases that we put them on our refrigerator, we put them on our mirror, we quote them, but we're not saying them in context. It's in context of failing, casting out these spirits out of this little child that he says, Everything is possible for the one who believes. Mark 9, 23. Everything is possible if you believe. And then the other one, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. Matthew 17, 20. Jesus is inviting you into the realm of risk. He's telling you, take a risk. Believe me. Get into the realm of the impossible. Time would fail me if I continued the frustration of Jesus. 
where he's sleeping on the boat peacefully and the water's coming in and they wake him up. And again, he's angry with them. You perverse generation, how much am I going to put it? And he goes, peace be still. And he stops the storm. You know, a religious mindset, it lets people be a critic to anybody else that is doing anything. And it gets inside of us because where you failed the most and where you're weakest and where you're in most trouble with the Lord, you may be like the disciples when John, the one that seems so sweet in the Bible, not like Peter, but John, he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, there was a guy casting out demons and I told him, stop. Now you would think Peter would have done that. You would have thought Peter would have been the one that says, stop casting out demons. You're not one of us. You haven't been trained by Jesus. Who gives you the authority to do it? Look, this is special. You've got to pay time. You've got to be discipled. You can't just go out there and do it. And Jesus says to him, why'd you stop him? You know, he won't be able to speak evil of me very quickly. Once he's used my name to cast out demons, he won't be using my name to curse with it. He won't be able to speak evil with my name very soon. You see the realistic side of Jesus. He's saying it won't hold forever, but it'll hold for a time being. Because once somebody sees the power of the name of Jesus, then they're not going to use Jesus' name in vain. They're not going to be using it as a swear word in their movies. You won't be just saying, oh, Jesus, and just be using it as a byword. It's interesting here that the very disciples who can't cast it out, that they come to Jesus and tell them, someone else should not be doing it. So as you're looking at it and you're passing judgment on someone who does do it, like when you look at, at someone who, who does it, you need to ask yourself, Am I frustrating the Lord by not doing it? By not doing anything? And this opens the door to all kinds of things. Because as the people go out, Jesus didn't seem to be afraid of that. He seemed to just say, let them go. So this is the point where we're going, is healing, deliverance. What God's doing. Is it for today or not for today? Has to be God's will or they're not going to be healed. Not his will or at all. This is called dispensation. Dispensationalism. It's argued a lot. But I'm going to tell you there's a very unique scripture. It's in Hebrews 6.5. And it talks about tapping into something. It talks about tapping into the power of the age to come. Now, I'm going to tell you something about this Jesus you serve. He invites you into something that's power that's not even in the age that you live. But everybody's doing what I talked about. They're going backwards in their theology. They're going the wrong way. They're thinking of ways to not do it, to say that scripture passed away. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are not anymore. Healings have stopped. It's wrong mindsets when the Lord gives you the ability to tap into the age, the powers that are yet to come. So like the children of Israel looking back into Egypt, he's telling you, step into the covenant that you're in. So we're going to take this up the next time. 
and we're going to look into some unbelievable examples of going the wrong way with our theology, of what Jesus called great faith, and where everybody would tell you this is absolutely not what you should do. It's jumping out of the boat, for sure. So, we'll begin right there on the next go-around. Amen.